Hey everyone, Lou Rosenfeld here with a prototype. This is the first ever podcast that I've done, and um, I figured I have so many opportunities to talk to so many fantastically interesting people, both in and outside the user experience field, that why not capture some of the conversations and share them with you? So that's what we're doing here. First time you've ever tried it. I hope you like it. Let me know what you think. We're recording live from the IHA Summit number 15 in, uh, where are we? San Diego, California. This is Lou Rosenfeld with Eduardo Ortiz and Donna Leachaw, who, like me, are both Brooklyn, New York residents. But we have to come to San Diego to have a conversation. <laughs> but this was like a really like well-timed conversation because um, they are half of a panel that presented earlier today on designing for villains with Aviva Rosenstein and David Bloxham. And what was the name of the moderator? He did a fantastic job. Eric Gibb. Fant- unbelievable. Yeah, this was, was this event was the one of 15 IA summits I've been to that are the only one I remember having a standing ovation. And uh, I'd like to put you on the spot and ask you why that was, but that wouldn't be fair. Let's actually talk a little bit about what, well, what did you talk about? What was so interesting? So you all, four of you, did a story uh, that had something to do with design for villains. Donna, why don't you talk a little bit about your story? Sure. So I talked about a story from early in, in my career when I was starting out. At the time, I was a web designer. And um, I was working for a what we called Literary Smut magazine. And it was essentially for people who like to read but also like smutty things like photographs and, and uh, dirt, kind of dirty stories. And I thought it would be a really great challenge for me because, so, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so like this this was really weird to hear about when you describe it. So it's like dirty <laughs> yeah. pictures and Dave Eggers? Kind of, I mean, yeah. D- dirty pictures and Norman Mail are okay. I think those <laughs> kind of go together. But I was a little confused by this. But this is a genre, literary smut. It, I mean, it was a genre at the time. I'm not sure it's still carried through, but it was for, yeah, essentially kind of literary folks who started to think, hmm, we we like erotica and we might want to read things um, like Mary Gateskill as an example, the the movie Secretary, a lot of people know. That mm-hmm. was one of the authors on this site. So she's very, very smart and is an amazing writer, but she would write about, um, about very, very dirty things. And so... It was it was a combination of people like that and sometimes just reprinting other types of just good stories. And the photography was incredible. So we'd have world-famous photographers do uh, photo galleries because it was, you know, the early 2000s. So that's right. what you did on the web, photo galleries. And usually they were tasteful and they were fantastic until um, about when I started working what, there. Well, what happened when you started working? Was there a bit of bait and switch? Yeah, there was a little bit of, of bait and switch. So we were still kind of doing the literary smut thing, but the audience, the perceived audience now was more, um, was, was dudes, essentially, and not a nice mix of men and women like it was before, not necessarily a mix of straight, queer, it was so, dudes. Well, so, like, when when... Dudes and chicks are in the same place. They're okay, but when you take the chicks away, the dudes become villains? Well, the that was how I, I saw it at the time and, and still do because I – 
came at, at, the, at the time I was coming out of college where I'd studied a lot of feminist literature and criticism, and I was specifically a, um, a, a film scholar. And so we'd study a lot about how uh, spaces in films were constructed and gendered. I also studied a lot of of physical architecture and look at gendered spaces and how the perceived use of a space would determine its construction. So in other words, if a housewife had to cook and clean and watch the kids, the house would be structured around those three things. And so I was always really, I'm still interested in how digital spaces can be constructed similarly. And I think what at the time was tough for me to grapple with is what was an inclusionary space suddenly felt like it was just a space for dudes to objectify and consume images of, of women. So you, you kind of described it, uh, I, I like the way you put it during your presentation. You were in a role where suddenly you had to chop up women for consumption. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the idea is the the core of objectification one of the cores is when you chop up images of women you essentially disembody them which makes it easier for people who are not women to consume these images so an example i like to give is if you don't see a woman's face in an image and it's just parts of her body she doesn't have eyes to stare you down and intimidate you with and so that ended up being a lot of what I, I did was chop up photographs and make it so they were acceptable on a homepage of a, a website with millions of readers every month. And um, it was tough. I was doing exactly what I said I would, I would never do. So, all right. So now you're in this horrible position of essentially being a, a not even a chef, but more of a short order cook feeding a, an audience that disgusts you, in fact. You could have just left, I suppose, but you did something different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was at at the time. It was right after the dot com bust, and I couldn't really leave. There weren't other jobs out there. I knew that for pretty much for a fact, and so I um, sought out my one of my favorite professors from undergrad, and I asked her for for advice because she and I had had talked a lot about feminist, um, just everything feminist, and she had was what was one of the best piece of, uh, pieces of advice I've ever gotten still to this day, which was she just said two words, RuPaul's legs. RuPaul's legs. Okay. <laughs> so I can, I, I can explain basically what she said. If I'm already going to be chopping up all these images of women for this audience, the, the audience didn't have to know where these images came from. And so her question for me was, could I take things like RuPaul's legs and have that pass for a model, let's say? And the answer was yes. And I ended up spending the next year or so chopping up a lot of RuPaul's legs and also inserting other uh, other things. So for straight stories, I would insert images of uh, maybe two men kissing or two women kissing or embracing, but you wouldn't know it was two men or two women because you couldn't see them. They might be off in the distance right. somewhere. So yeah, so, it worked. So uh, you, you served up something that wasn't really on the menu, but uh, it worked and it, it was it successful design. I mean, that's a good question, because looking back, you know, after now having done this for about 15 years, would I do it again? I always ask myself. And, you know, now as a designer, I would 
of course, better understand the business. I would go out and talk to users, try to build empathy, might even change the business model a little bit if I saw that there was an inconsistency between what the business wanted and users. Um, but, you know, at the at the time, I didn't really have these tools. I was starting out. And, uh, you know, I, I often ask myself, well, who was right or wrong in this situation? And it's almost like I, I was the villain in a mm. way, but I'm quite all, all right with that. Because when you don't have tools, sometimes subversion is your, is your best tool. Wow. So subversion is a design tool. And did you get found out at some point, by the way? Never. I might get found out now, but... <laughs> All right, everyone I listening never. to this, shh, don't spread a word. Wow, that's a fantastic story. Um, and uh, one of four, and we're going to get another one right now from Eduardo Ortiz. Um, now, let's go back to uh, a long time ago when you were still young, and um, when you were 18, you said. And uh, what was your moral compass like when you were 18, Eduardo? Uh, my moral compass was highly focused on making money. That's the best way that I can put it. Okay. And so you got a job. Yeah. So my first job straight out of high school, uh, I had been making posters and things in high school and I, uh, getting involved with the programming and the web. And a friend of a good friend of mine, uh, offered me a job. Uh, he said that I would get really good pay and that I could do anything that I wanted to do with the job. And obviously all I heard was good pay and I took the job. Okay, so it uh, sounded too good to be true? Uh, usually, like, yeah. like everything that sounds too good to be true, yeah. uh, it was too good to be true. But at the time I was 18 and how I said it earlier, I was uh, gung-ho young and dumb and i'm no longer young <laughs> okay so so you talk about the job what, what did they have you do so it took me so on the first day on the job uh this was uh, at an apartment that was slash an office and it took me three days before i found out what exactly the job was for and it turned out that i was going to be creating a web portal for sex tourism uh, aimed at Europeans looking to book lodging and travel and companionship in the Dominican Republic. And what was the term for that? It was a, a one I'd never heard before. Uh, the term is Sankey Panky, okay. S-A-N-K-Y-P-A-N-K-Y. And that's a localized term for a sex worker in the Dominican Republic. Uh, they usually solicit on the beach, but... This guy was trying to be uh, ahead of the curve and solicit online. So you're 18 years old. You're, you're essentially realizing you're a designer. And suddenly you're designing a business for Sankey Panky. And how'd you feel? I felt like I wanted to get paid. So it took me a little bit before my moral compass finally started uh, getting straightened out, if you will. Uh, and it, it took... It took this guy showing me uh, our studio in the apartment, probably five to seven days after I had already been working there, mind you, again, in an apartment. And I asked him, whoa, what are all these lights and fancy cameras and tripods for? And he told me that we're also going to be shooting some amateur porn to give our visitors an idea of what they're 
companions look like. So was this like the point where you started stepping back a little bit and feeling like there may actually be some villains in the picture? Oh, absolutely. I I was okay up until the point up until the point of uh, dealing with uh, booking these people, travel and uh, lodging and companionship. But something about the fact that we were also going to be shooting porn just was not uh, aligning with me and my interests at all. Okay, so um, so now you're you know you're you're almost essentially becoming a pornographer and. Um, probably really torn because it's also great money and great freedom and you're an 18 year old. Um, so what hit you at that point? You know, I did some, uh, introspective and I looked at what was around me and I was raised by my mom and my sisters and my grandma and my Nana. And I figured that I just didn't want to be, uh, painting women in, in that light. I thought that I could, uh, that I could do better, that I could do a better job. And that led me to, to kind of figure out who was actually involved in, in, this, uh, in this product, who were we actually designing for, uh, who was our audience, was it really the, the travelers looking to vacation in the Dominican Republic with an exotic looking Dominican young woman, or was our main audience really supposed to be this woman who, by talking to them, I learned we're doing this out of their own free will. Their stories completely blew my mind. Many of them were putting themselves through school. Many of them were doing this in order to be able to help their families. And to, in the case of two of them, they actually were doing it so they could put food in front of in front of their kids. And at that point, I it became obvious to me that they were the ones that I wanted to be designing for. I wanted to make it so that they could have a better life. So was there a moment when you either talked to your family, they asked you what you were doing, or that you just somehow you just sort of identified the faces that you loved at home with the faces of the people who were the sex workers? I think it was uh, as I started to, to talk to them, uh, one of them was my, the same age as uh, one of my sisters, and it just hit me that these, these women could have been my sisters. Right. So then you also saw that, as you're pointing out, there's, there's not just one audience and the transaction is not as simple and, and straightforward as, as it might have appeared, that the, the women were, were part of this and you know, out of their own free will. Um, you weren't very comfortable with that, um, but you also developed a sense of empathy when you, it sounds like you actually started interviewing them and talking with them. Um, was that hard? Did you have any misgivings about it? Did you have any uh, uh, approaches that helped you have those conversations? It was hard primarily because I really could not wrap my head around the fact that they were doing this out of their own free will. And that was initially why I pushed back and I said, I am not doing this because I thought in one way or another, they were being coerced. And honestly, talking to them, it all it took was actually starting to talk to them. Uh -huh. I recall one afternoon uh, while one of them came to the, to the office, uh, to the studio, and before she went into the studio, I asked her, why do you do this? What, what do said? you get out of this? And she said, I have to feed my kids. And that was 
gut-wrenching. That, that made me realize that I did not have all the answers and that if I did want to find out what the answers were, I needed to talk to, the, to them. I needed to understand what they were going through and what their, what their stories were. So did you then stay put? Did you continue doing the work only with a, a different mind and maybe a different heart? I did both things. I decided to, to stay for a while longer. I talked to, uh, to the guy that had employed me, and I told him that I wanted to change the, the product itself. I wanted to focus more on the women, and I wanted to focus on what they wanted. Uh, through interviewing them, I learned that they were not just hooking up with this man. They were actually establishing real relationships, mm-hmm. uh, and that these were things that were ongoing. Many of the men would not come back for two or three years, because of the prohibitive cost of travel, but they kept in touch through the phone, through email, and through letters. And that led me to believe that a dating site, something more akin to building relationships, would have been a a better product for us to build. So, okay, so then you actually changed the business and through the design work that you did. Well, at least I tried, but it turns out that the sex tourism market is a heck of a lot stronger than the dating uh, market, and I tried standing up for what I believed was right, and I was shut down, and I decided to walk out in the end. Well, so here's a question for both of you, really. You know, you, you both kind of did had these really interesting experiences, both in terms of design for subversion and, you know, design... Well, you, you, Eduardo, were kind of designing, um, trying to change the design to reflect a very different type of relationship than... The, those uh, people who were hiring the sex workers had with the sex workers themselves, uh, not quite uh, all that met the eye. Um, it didn't necessarily end well in either case. Um, you weren't able to change that design in Bardo and, and Donna. Eventually you left, and hopefully this podcast will lead to uh, some some lawsuit by your former employer. <laughs> um, but what, you know, uh, I mean, what can you give us? that you've given yourself to these experiences like what do you do now and and how do you approach your work as designers that you you got from those experiences and what can you share with us sure so the 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 big thing i learned is that you can trust your gut for one so there are are times when you know as designers we, we preach empathy. We want to empathize with the business and the users. And I have seen that completely change my job with a lot of organizations, completely change products I've worked on, completely change everything. And it's wonderful when we can do that. But sometimes your gut might just say, this is, this is not for me. This is something I, I cannot do. And, and that's okay. And when you can walk away, absolutely walk away and sometimes you you can't walk away and um you know the best way to do that is to uh perhaps use play you know a type of subversion that that just makes it acceptable for you to stay well and a lot of people say that good design is is magic and you kind of did a little bit of magic that was maybe uh, a, a magical joke that you got to share with yourself no one else really knew but you there's a bit of magic in there nonetheless, a little sleight of hand. Um, what about you, Eduardo? Well, I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that uh, in order to be able to actually design, you need to identify your audience, and you need to be able to listen to them. You need to be able to talk to them, and you also need to be able to empathize with them. 
you need to let go of any preconceptions that you may have of uh, of anything that you may think that is wrong. It is not about you, it's about them. And the biggest thing that I also learned is not to be afraid. I had to learn that it was okay if I couldn't, if I could no longer eat out at a restaurant three times a day, seven days a week, or go to the beach every single weekend. It was going to be okay. And not being afraid and not being afraid to stand up for what I believe is right uh, and never stopping doing what I believe in is probably key to being happy. Well, and I think both of you looking back at that, those respective experiences can say you feel good about what you did. You tried to do things. Um, maybe you weren't able to break through, but you you didn't just keep the situation static. That was not a good situation. You actually try to make change. And um, whether it works out or not, you got to feel good about that. Well, that's a great place to end, I think. Uh, I want to thank you both, Eduardo Ortiz and Donna Lichal, uh, part of the Brooklyn UX Mafia. We'll see you at a, a happy hour soon, I'm sure. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Lou.